Tonight's cases feature ordinary people thrust into a vortex of mystery, heartbreak, and intrigue. Each one is searching for that vital clue to end a story that so far has no ending. Perhaps you can help. Join me. You may be able to help solve a mystery. Tonight, a special report on one of the most fascinating mysteries of this century. Oh yeah, why don't you talk to me? I'm sorry. Give me, give me a count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I just okay, don't want to. I don't want to. This mic, I don't want to be popping my, popping my your peas, popping, being like Geraldo's always Pop popping peas. his peas. Pop the peas, like I used to say. Pass the peas. Pass the peas. Pass the peas, like I used to say. Go, Larry. Go, let. Welcome to I, a brand I've met new. Larry. You met Larry Goldine? I know. I have. Through Mr. Pizzarelli. I, I didn't know. you. T- oh, uh, Mr. Pizzarelli hooked you up and met Larry? Yeah. Uh, drummer. So was he playing with him? No, he plays keyboards. Like organ. Oh, he plays keyboards. Oh, wow. That's really cool. When he, was this? He was on one of the recording sessions that I uh, filmed. Uh, some oh. years. Was it was a 10 years, 11 years, 15. It was a long time ago. He broke my music stand. <laughs> I mean, my uh, lights, Larry, my light stand. <laughs> Why? Because he just had like a he just got pissed and threw his keyboard. <laughs> he was moving something and it and and like like a thing that was blocking the uh, the rotary speaker for the Hammond organ or he was yeah know, whatever organ it is that has like the big rotary speaker. It was blocking the sound from it for the for you know recording purposes, and it fell over and it hit my light stand and like bent the crap out while of they were light. playing. I think, it was blow a take. I think it was in between. <laughs> Who put this here? Um, welcome to a special edition of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Uh, I'm Dion Baia. And I'm Jay Blake. And we were just talking about John Pizzarelli and uh, Larry Mr. Goldine. Larry, and Mr. Larry Goldine. And what was the name of the... Um, it's uh, 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 Live from Planet Groove. Maceo Parker. <laughs> Maceo Parker, that great album. Live from Planet Groove, Maceo Parker. Uh, that's something I forgot how I found out about that. Remember that whole summer being you jammed out in the car, blasting that <laughs> out of my my neon speakers, my 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 Chrysler, my Plymouth neon. That might have come um, to us through Mike Bram that album. I think you're right. Yeah, Leroy, Mike Bram, uh, Jason Mraz's drummer, uh, who recorded with Willie Nelson. They did a track together. It's like awfully exciting, worthless information. Uh, but we're here for a special uh, edition of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, like a little extra kind of thing, because Blake and I were hanging out, and we said, you know what, if we're hanging out, why not just record stuff, you know, because, you know, we're hanging out, and we're 
social distancing and we've got our masks on. We're both wearing handkerchiefs. We look like we're going to go rob a stagecoach or a train. And, uh, you know, uh, so we said, hey, you know what? Let's let's talk. Right. And um, I was telling him about the black hole, Disney's black hole. And as we already did do. a podcast on the black <laughs> hole, as you do. Yeah. <laughs> That was the joke last time, the, 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 like the, the glory of the black hole. <laughs> uh, but we already did a podcast on the black hole, but it's almost like, I, you know, late at night, you know, now that Amazon Prime has everything, I was watching the original Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. And for people who've never seen the originals, I know they did a, they redid the show in the mid-2000s with, uh, what's his face, who passed away, uh, Steve, um, uh, what's his name from the Michael Mann movies? He's in uh, Manhunter, and he's in Snatch. Uh, you know him. Uh, oh, that guy. yeah. The guy who used uh, to be like he, a Chicago cop. He's in... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what the, yeah, what the hell's his Farina? name? Farina? Dennis Farina? Name. Dennis Farina, yes. Uh, he hosts the newer show. But then when you look at the menu bar, it has a picture of Robert Stack. So you get your mouth all ready for some Robert Stack, and you turn it on, and it's him, and it's all... But they use the original elements of this. But I digress. So I was watching the original uh, Amazon... The original Unsolved Mystery show on Amazon Prime, and amazing show if you haven't seen it. Really should check it out. But they have segments where they're like, update, and they tell an update about an episode. I was sitting there one night, and I was like, you know, we could do an update, Blake and I, because there's a couple of stuff we, 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 you know, we, shows we've done that we said, you know, we'd love to redo the show, but what's the point of, re- like, we were remaking our own. It's like a remake. We're doing, redoing our <laughs> own show. I've often thought about <laughs> that we should redo a movie. Um, yeah. Especially so this some of like the earlier s- stuff. Yeah, where we have either new information or maybe it might sound better now or, or we just want to talk about it because it's such a great topic. A lot of times there's stuff we'll talk four hours and we, we won't even get to some other stuff. Yeah, you or know, sometimes like the early episodes are like an hour long. Yeah, and then, you know, people know we can fill time. Nobody can fill time like uh, Blake <laughs> and Dion. <laughs> we, can, we can fill time. You need us to stretch, yeah. stretch it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stretch, stretch. <laughs> so we were talking about, um, you know, uh, why don't we do some updates to some shows or, or, or redo some shows. So I was like, hey, why don't we do an update on a show or two? And uh, I had recently, since I've had a lot of time on my hands with everything going on, I was dipping into my novelization, all my books. You know, Blake and I connect uh uh, collect novelizations and, and um, of, of movies, and uh, we have a pretty healthy catalog and, and um, library of them. So I was going through, and I picked up um, good old Alan Dean Foster's novelization for The Black Hole, and I finally read it. And it was something that I guess at that time we hadn't regularly been reading because we didn't read the anything for The, the Black. I read The Cinema Fantastique for the uh, podcast, but I don't feel like at the time we were regularly trying to seek out the novelizations for these things. We might have done it for a couple of movies by then, but it wasn't like a thing for us. Like common, yeah. So um, I never, you know, searched it out, and I had it after. I think you got me the novel. Did you get me the the, the I, novelization for I the Black have. Hole? I buy you Black Hole shit all the time. <laughs> Yeah, so that's another thing. Yeah, we talk about in the first one. Blake uh, has has helped me develop a healthy uh, collection of black hole memorabilia of stuff I've already had. But then Blake will just know since I'm a fan of the movie. If he's at a convention or someplace, he'll pick me up something. So you've gotten, or in some cases, you gave me your original storybook you had as a kid. Yeah, that hardcover one. I have that. You've given me the soundtrack. I think you bought me. You say in the first podcast you bought me. 
an edition of a maybe it was a sealed edition of the score or soundtrack that you got in in Pittsburgh. Yeah, maybe when you guys when you and Mike Morona went to Pittsburgh. Yeah, you went to that store there. You bought me it there. Uh, so I have the soundtrack, and then there's also like a uh, like a movie edition where it's the movie on record uh-huh. with some dialogue that's not in the um, uh, in the original uh, that's in the movie at all. So uh, and then I've got figures, and now Walgreens is putting out. If people don't know, as of this recording, 2020, for some reason Walgreens has exclusive figures. They have Westworld figures. They have uh, original Tron figures, and they have uh, original Rocketeer. They have as well uh, a Rocketeer figure, and they also have uh, two Black Hole figures. They have Maximilian and um, and Vincent, which is pretty sweet. So uh, that sparked, I think, the interest. I walked into a Walgreens when all this social distancing was starting, and I was walking by the toy aisle as I do, and I look down, I see a black hole figure, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. "What the what, crap what year is, this? is it?" <laughs> yeah, well, suddenly I'm yeah, suddenly it's it's 1979, and they got like uh, they have Star Trek masks, uh, you know, hanging from the wall and stuff like that. I'm like, "What the hell is going on there?" So. Uh, I bought the two of them. Uh, I had to search out. It took me a couple trips to get when the, I, I had to find out when the truck schedule was, when they got their deliveries, because I wanted to get the um, Ed Harris Man in Black Westworld figure, which I was unable to get. But I grabbed the two Tron figures. I couldn't get the Jeff Bridges figure. I grabbed like all this money I need to spend. My wife's like, "What are you? What are you bringing this home for?" <laughs> I know. Toys. Well. Blake, yeah, I was like, with all this is over, Blake's you know. gonna come over, and we're gonna play with them. Exactly, <laughs> we're gonna play. We're gonna wait till I get the Christmas tree up. We're gonna have an awesome freaking <laughs> train set up, and GI Joes are gonna try to take the train. So I got Vincent, and then I I eventually tracked down after multiple trips that I didn't need to make. Uh, I was social distancing the entire time with my mask on. I've got myself a a, a a sweet Maximilian figure. So that got me to read the novelization. So as I'm reading the novelization, I said, you know, I remember when we did the podcast, we said that there was a comic too. So I went online. And I found the three comics for cheap on eBay. So I bought the uh, Whitman, uh, put them out, comics. I, um, there was uh, originally four comics. We can get, well, I we guess get into this as we can get now. Uh, and then they did an extra two that were only released in German and, like, uh, Spanish. Yeah. So the, 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 the end of the run wasn't uh, in English. So it was always, just, there was this big cliffhanger. And Whitman so Comics learned at the time. They, uh, Totally I learned like German and I learned uh, <laughs> Spanish. Just so you could just to just to ch- I called up my old friend Alex that we talk about in some episodes, and I and I I, I zoomed. I had a Zoom meeting with him, and he actually read the <laughs> he read the comic to me in the uh, the Spanish because it was it was released in Mexico. Uh, but Whitman, I guess near the end of their run, uh, Whitman was a a comic book company that was in connection with Gold Key, and Gold Key are one of the guys that put out a lot of like all the Disney. Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck and all that. And Whitman and Goldkey were also putting out a lot of great... Their thing was, uh, in the 60s, they were trying to put out... They would get the rights to stuff. And and for a time in the mid-60s, they had Gary Marshall, who was writing stuff for like the Dick Van Dyke show. He was a writer on the sitcom. He was writing Flintstones, Uncle Scrooge, Daffy Duck, Three Stooges, Woody Woodpecker for them. And then in the 70s, uh, Whitman and Goldkey got the Star Trek. And they were putting Star Trek comics out. And then right before the Star Trek motion picture comes out, they lose the rights and Marvel acquires the Star Trek rights. And then the Mar- Marvel is able to put out like the movie adaption of the Star Trek. So near the 80s, Golkey and Whitman are starting to go under and they end up getting defunct in 84. But 
they start doing a lot of these. They did like Buck Rogers. They did like a lot of these kind of novelizations or, or adaptions of movie stuff. They did Twilight Zone in the 70s. They did a lot of uh, horror books. They did Scooby-Doo. They did Pink Panther. They did uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Wild West. They had a lot of these properties they would adapt into comic book form. And they did The Black Hole. And uh, the first two issues is just a movie adaptation. And then the third issue is called Beyond the Black Hole. And by the time these were being released, what happened was a lot of these comics that were geared towards little kids, they were taking a dip in sales because kids were suddenly watching cartoons on television in the 70s. So they weren't really going in and getting those young, like the Disney comics and stuff like that. And uh, Whitman and Goldkey, they didn't know what to do, so they started just... They, their their marketing wasn't really good, so they had them just in supermarkets and stuff like that and, and in grocery stores. So a lot of kids weren't seeing them or getting them. So their sales went down. So what they ended up doing was they would package comics three at a time. So like the Black Hole, the first three came out together and you can get them. And then the fourth one became this really, really hard to find because it came out with two other comics. And then, like I said, five and six were made in, in just in German and, and Spanish. So... Uh, it's really weird after the adaptation of the first two comics that you get uh, the third comic be when they go through the black hole and they kind of turn it into a Star Trek or uh, Lost in Space. They're trying to have it be like, I guess, a uh, uh, kind of a pilot or a promo to, to see if this if they can make a series out of this, which it doesn't really go anywhere. So uh, that's pretty exciting. And as well as we thought we'd talk a little bit about the soundtrack, the uh, John Barry soundtrack as well, because it's such a, an epic and awesome soundtrack, and we love John Barry. And, that, you, but you, uh, also, uh, you also read the novelization, right? Yeah, I read the, uh, the uh, Alan Dean Foster novelization, and you know what struck me about it is just how awesome Alan Dean Foster is. I mean, uh, here's a guy that I don't know if people, I'm sure people who, it's like, like with our podcast, I feel like, you know, we, we you know, we... Uh, we don't know a lot, but we know a little of everything. So there's, I'm sure there's people who listen to this who are going to know way more yeah. about this stuff than we do. Yeah. So we'll we'll get into it and we'll get obsessed by it. We'll read as much as we can, or uh, you know, try to prep for the podcast. So we may not put everything in, and then there's going to be people who will listen to this and be like, you know, you forgot to mention that. Da, 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 da. So I I feel like uh, we don't want to do anybody a disservice, but um, when we talk about stuff, but we try to do the best we can. And Alan Dean Foster was a guy who I was really, really digging because um, it's amazing when you start looking at all these books and you see, uh, you know, there's certain people that like uh, Max Allen Collins, people's names who come up all the time that you realize that we're in the business doing this. And uh, Alan Dean Foster's another guy who uh, in the 70s, he was doing the... Star War, uh, the Star Trek records, the LPs, the the stories yeah. um, that you and I like. Uh, he did the adapt adaptations of, or he wrote a couple of those. He did those Star Logs, you know, those um, uh, novelizations in the seventies that were like Star Trek, uh, either for the original Star Trek show or they were just novelizations of the animated series. Yeah, uh, he did those, and then he did his own, you know, writing. He he had these big. Um, properties that he did and that that came out uh the spell singer series the tipping uh point trilogy uh and he did a lot of standalone novels a lot of sci-fi very fantasy based in sci-fi but for what we're talking about tonight our um our uh, point of all this and what we're, we're centralizing in on is his uh his output for movie novelizations and he did the um 
let's see, he did Star Trek, the, we said the Star Trek logs, and then he ends up doing um, Star Wars, he does the motion picture for Star Trek, the novelization for the, for the uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, and then he does uh, Star Wars, and then he ends up doing a, uh, he is the ghostwriter on George Lucas's, because the novelization for Star Wars is accredited to George Lucas, but he's the ghostwriter on it. And he said, like, you know, he, somebody asked him about, um, you know, do you mind not having your name on that? And he's like, no, it's like, because, he, uh, I forget how he puts it, but he's like, uh, you know, I was just a cog in the wheel with that. It was his vision. Yeah. I just was the guy who, you know, got it out. So he ends up writing before when we talk about all this in the Star Trek, uh, I'm sorry, Star Wars episode we did on the first movie. But he says at the time when it, came out and they didn't know it was going to be this little low budget movie that might not go anywhere. They didn't know if they'd ever have a sequel. It may just come or go. So he did a novelization called uh, uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye in 1978, which was going to be the low budget sequel to Star Wars uh, if the, the movie never went anywhere. But then we know that this thing took off and then it, you know they had Empire Strikes Back and all that stuff. So he wrote those Star Wars books and then Years later, he ended up adapting the Star Wars. He did uh, the the newest ones here, the uh, Force Awakens. Uh, he did that uh, novelization for Star Wars, and uh, he did Aliens. He did all the Alien movies: Alien, Aliens, Alien Three, Alien Covenant. He did Terminator Salvation, yeah. the Transformers movies that just came out. He also uh, did he a did lot. Dark of, Star. He also did a lot of the uh, yeah Dark Star. He did a lot of the Carpenter ones. Like he yeah, did the novelization did, uh, from the thing screenplay. And yeah, Dark Star, which is Star a really Man. hard to. I think he did Starman also. He did Starman too. He the the, uh, the thing one is is a real sought after that novelization. Uh, I think there's a particular edition that people really like. That it's if you go on eBay, it's really hard to find. Yeah. Uh, him. Uh, he did Clash of the Titans, Outland, that Sean Connery movie, Crawl, The Last Starfighter, and the Lost Starfighter storybook. Um, he did an unpublished novelization for Maud. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Near and dear to my heart. Uh, Pale Rider, Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, Chronicles of Riddick. Um, so it's just he's all over. And uh, why I'm talking so heavily about his career and all that kind of stuff is just that because when you read something like um, this, The Black Hole that he did, uh, it's, and oh, then he did Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, and he did some uh, the Star Trek 2009 movie novelization. So you know, and he's had his own stuff. So he's one of these guys who just poops stuff out all the time. And I, f I would think it'd be particularly hard for him to come on and just you know. I was thinking that like, oh, you know, if you and I changed um, careers and we tried to do um, you know uh, novelizations, how hard would that be to take a script and then turn it into you know. Uh, well, breathe life. I guess it's kind of like what I do with yeah, my own personal doing books. doing it right now. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I had my screenplays done, and then I, I turned them into novelization, which was my first book, Blood in the Streets, and then my new book, Morris P.I., that'll be coming out. So, um, reading the, the novelization, I, I was just so surprised at like the in-depth and the knowledge, and I was like, wow, you know, this is something I'd never be able to do, because you got to be a genius to be able to sound kind of lucid in, you know, space tech yeah. You know, and then you're making all this stuff up and quantum mechanics and physics and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, it's really an undertaking to do a novelization. So um, not only was it just a straight novelization of the book, it was a darn good one. And it was off an earlier version of the script. And it's much darker than the, um, the movie is. And 
the comic book adaptation as well is also a little uh, goes off the same script that the novelization goes off of. So a lot of the key points, uh, the same thing happens. Yeah. Um, and then wh- while we're here with with those novelizations, there's a third novelization that came out by King Kirby. Jack Kirby had done. Uh, he had left in the 70s, I think, Marvel, and he was freelancing as a freelance artist. So there was a series Disney had in the newspapers called Walt Disney's Treasure, Treasury of Classic Tales, which was out between 1952 and 1987. And what they would do in newspapers is they would adapt their movies into, like, you know, for the comic strips for the newspaper. So he, they, in, in, in that series, you got, you know, he, they did Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, they did The Tramp, you did The Beast, um, they did Watcher in the Woods, they did, uh, there's another movie from that era that they did. But anyway, they got Kirby to do Tron, um, not Tron, Black Hole. And uh, Kirby did a 26 panel. It, oh, and, and these things would run for six months. And he did the, uh, the translation from the Black Hole, which is completely different art than the comic book, because that was Whitman, for newspapers. But I guess... Uh, not a lot of newspapers picked up the run, so it was rare to get the whole thing, to see the whole thing in certain newspapers in certain markets, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so, so Kirby did his rendition of the black hole off the same script that everyone was using that is different from the movie version that we see, the theatrical cut. So his art is different. It's interesting where his art looks a little more, because the Whitman art kind of looks really nothing like the actors who end up playing him. Uh the guy Booth, played by Ernest Borgnine, he kind of looks more like the Blob. He's, his face is like he's heavier, and then um, uh, what's his face? Uh, who Tony Perkins plays? He kind of looks more like the actor who just passed away, who was in Benson and was also on Deep Space Nine. You know him? Yeah, uh, yeah. He's got a French name. He was the, like the shapeshifter. The, the art. On. Yeah, and he's he's Benson's guy in Benson, and he's also uh, you know he's in Star Trek Six. I think he's one of the guys who ends up, you know, as part of the assassination attempt, spoiler alert, you know. Uh, but the, the art kind of looks like that. And then, you know, you have different versions of what Maximilian Schell looks like. And it's funny, in the Whitman comic, he almost has the uh, mustache. You can curl. He's yeah. curling his mustache up in the, in the comic book adaptation. So um, I really enjoyed reading all three of these and then seeing, I really enjoyed the novelization. That was the, the impetus of, of yeah. us doing this little update thing, me dragging Blake out of bed and sitting him <laughs> down to, to talk about this. And then the other ones were just nice companion pieces to see yeah. what they did and then especially where they thought, because I guess there was no direction at that point from Disney after you do the adaptation. So Whitman was like, what do we do now? And they're like, well, I don't know, whatever you want to do. So they kind of like just were like turned it into like a lost in space uh, which I could talk about in a minute. Um, and you were looking stuff up about John Barry because we were talking about, you know, how I personally love the score and especially the theme that, that you hear at the beginning. It's, 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 it's freaking phenomenal. And uh, I'm a big yeah, fan of this I'm, John Barry score. I mean, I'm happy to talk about the score, but I think, like, I think the, the, the most interesting, potentially, I didn't read the novelization yet, even though I've had a copy of it forever. But the but the, the potentially interesting thing would be what the differences are. You know, it's my understanding. Yeah, why are we doing this? I don't know, but I through a little bit of research that I did, I read that the ending of the black hole, the movie, was like real secretive, and they didn't want to yeah. leak it out to anybody, and it wasn't even in the script. 
and that the guys that are credited as the writers of the script didn't even write the ending of the movie because that came like yeah. later. And so these novels. Jeff Rosenbrook and Jerry Day did the screenplay. And so I've heard that the, you know, when they wrote the novelization and the comic books and stuff, like the ending of the movie didn't exist yet. So that the ending is different in those is what I've heard. Yeah. And it's weird because then the novelization comes out like a year later. I mean, the, um, I'm sorry, the comic book adaptation where uh, the Kirby one, I think, runs, I think, in 79. Um, but certainly the comic book ones, they were in 1980, which is really odd. So um, it, 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 it's, you wonder why, what the lag time was there, and, or maybe because it's, being, it's taken so long to be produced. I would assume that the, um, that the, the novelization would hit the store uh, in tandem with the movie coming out. Because you want to have it, you know, be uh, uh, a a marketed piece that you could take home and something like, you know, merchandise. Um, the ending is that, well, first off, the, the, the book is a little darker with stuff and it's, and, and they, and what I like about it is they go into detail about different things. Um, you know, we talk about in, in, in all the books and, and even the, uh, the, the illustrations of um, the female character, she's got longer hair. And what I realized, which I don't even know if we talked about in the, other podcasts we did on the movie proper is that the reason why they gave her short hair really quickly, um, uh, Manu, Manu, we, we never say her name right, uh, is because they didn't, you know, if it's supposed to be in zero gravity, how do you illustrate zero gravity with a big head of hair? So they said, fuck it, we'll just, you know, cut her hair and that way we don't have to worry about it floating around and that kind of a thing. Um, and we talk about in the first podcast, I was my affinity for the Black Hole movie itself and Ernest Borgnine and growing up very young i had a healthy dose of those live action 70s disney movies the devil and max devon I'm tr- and i'm trying to get know. to the i'm trying i want to know what the ending of the book is <laughs> well the ending of the book the bush, cut right to the end you're beating around the bush <clears throat> the ending of the the ending of the book is that they go through and the, you know they the same thing is they have to get on the uh uh they have to get on the the um this the that one the one ship that because the, theirs is destroyed and it's programmed to go into the black hole. So they go into the black hole and they realize when they go in that uh, suddenly uh, she, Kate starts talking to him because she has ESP. And she's the one who's able to keep it together for them and bring them together. And they come through and it becomes this weird thing where they get through and then they're all kind of part of of this. It's almost like it's a transitional like trend. They, they transcend into a different plane and they all become one this being and they're all part of the universe and it's very esoteric where they're able to talk to each other be calm and then they're like they realize they're part of the stars and they're part of the the, the being and they're part of each they're all going to be happy together and they all are, are this one almost symbiotic organism you know but that you can't see you know it's yeah, yeah. and then vincent is there too the robot it's all metaf- you know, it's uh, all metaphysical on you yeah because you like you said they didn't know what to do and um when you go back to the beginning of it, if if we go through it, I guess, in some sort of symmetry of an order, it starts off where it's Christmas Eve, and they're talking about having turkey for Christmas Eve, and I think we mentioned that as one of the, the things they threw out of the movie, but it's funny to think this is a Christmas movie, that... It's yeah. Christmas Eve when they're on the, the when they discover the uh, the Cygnus hanging out and they get on board. It's Christmas, you know. It's Christmas Day at that point when they're eating meal with with uh, shell. So we could have done this as a Christmas movie, and you know, you've been like, ha ha ha. Um, 
and then you see there's a scene where it uh, in in both versions where uh, uh, what's his face um, uh, William Forrester's character is uh, you know kissing Kate. You know, they have a you know it's implied in the movie that they have a, a like a little attraction to each other. But at the beginning of this, you see that they they embrace and kiss and they're very you know. And I don't know if they're trying to keep it the secret, but they're on an 18 month mission and they're on their way back. And it's very uneventful, and they're kind of bored, and they're like, oh, this sucks. And then that's when they see the black hole out there, and then they see the ship. And it's great that they talk about, um, you know, the making of the ship was one of the wonders of the world, the Cygnus, because it was really um, Maximilian Schell, Reinhardt, who single-handedly got almost the entire Earth or whatever the planetary United Nations thing was, that he's the one who advocated and got the money and it cost so much freaking money and the point of the ship was going to be so that you can go out and live out there uh really for eternity in a sense where the ship would be able to self-maintain itself you'd have people on to be able to take care of it and it would be able to last generations out there and be able to kind of take care of itself in a certain way with the oxygen and the plant supply so when the darn thing goes missing 20 years later it's one of the biggest craziest fiascos in earth's history and now they've realized they don't need to make things that are as big as a city. So uh, the, it's almost like today, the glory and the grandeur of this big old thing where you condense it into the little ship that they're on now, the Palomino. You know, that's when they used to spend all this kind of crazy money. And uh, they didn't need to do that with this new stuff. So Kate also talks about her implant. And she has, it's never really explained in the movie what's going on with her ESP with Vincent, uh, played unaccredited by Roddy McDowell. And... She talks about how there was a lot of people vying to get on this mission to go out, and you know she was one of them. And as an incentive to get chosen, she could opt to have this very experimental surgery where you can get this implant in it. And the idea is that uh, you would have the implant and you'd be able to send a robot into the black hole or whatever, and then you'd be able to communicate that way. And she elects on her own to get the implant, and it's kind of dangerous because some people, it, there was a chance that your mind, you can go, you won't come back right. Some people freaked out and gone crazy with the implant. She's able to have it, and she's fine, and then she gets picked because she has the, the implant, and she's now tandem with Vincent, uh, that she will now also uh, be part of the mission, along with... Uh, you know, the Anthony Perkins character, who's really the head of the mission. And that's not really explained. Well, at least I never picked that up in the movie that Anthony Perkins is really the team leader and the head of this whole science mission because he's the senior scientist. And the other two uh, are just, you know, the pilots. Then you have the press man who's Ernest Borgnine Booth. And then you have her who's the under scientist to him, Tony Perkins. So when we get aboard, you know, it's, it's just more extravagant about how nice the ship is. And you, you learn about also why when they walk in to uh, when they first get aboard the Cygnus, uh, their weapons are automatically shot away from them. And it's because there was these security precautions of any kind of hostile being ever coming in. It's very it's it's set up in such a great way of like, you know, the uh, when they when they come in, it's almost like when you're in an airport and you, you come in and you, you, you're to the area. It's very extravagant. And it looks to me, it sounded very like. 2001 space odyssey you know of uh, how it looks and their weapons are shot out from under them they realize that oh it's because that there's the a system engaged for any kind of hostiles to take out weapons and then when they get up to the to the to the uh the the um bridge and they meet 
uh, Reinhardt and they meet Maximilian. They talk about Maximilian and they say that there's these that, that hit the, the robot when they first encounter him. They see how big he is, and these are kind of robots that are only used in industrial uh, factories and stuff like that. And they're usually very basic programs, and they're outlawed. Regular people aren't allowed to have robots that big because of the inherent dangers of their their weight or if they something goes wrong. But they're instantly able to tell when they see him and how he's moving and that he's moving without any sound that he can't be one of these simpletons. And somebody had to have broken the law and made him and had him. And then that's when we're introduced to Reinhardt, which is Maximilian Schell. And he's the captain of the sickness. Um, and he's been, you know, the whole thing about the people being recalled. And he decided to stay out there because the ship was uh, broke. And he makes all this shit up. And um, you learn more about his psyche, which is really, really um, fascinating. And, um, you know, uh, him being a madman and being out there and wanting to find a black hole. And then his ultimate goal is he wants to go through the black hole because he feels like that he can attain some sort of eternal life and find the secret of life by going into a black hole and um it's quite interesting that way and uh you have they another thing we talk about in in our uh the original podcast is we were like you know why is there suddenly a game room you know uh, what's the whole deal with um with why suddenly there's like a you know like an arcade for the robots and in the novelization, they give a reason where they were saying that there was this phenomenon that, used, that suddenly started to develop with these robots. That there's, you know, they have these integral minds, and it's kind of like they present an Earth where um, you have. Um, it's kind of like iRobot, the the Will Smith Isaac Asimov. Uh, movie where there's robots around doing tasks for you. You have robots at home. You know, uh, it's really something that I think if anybody's out there who has connections to Disney, that Blake and I should pitch a show for Disney, their, the Disney Plus app, where we remake the Black Hole uh, as a series. Uh, that movie, but then there's other episodes where we have um, the backstory of what's going on on Earth because the Earth they create it's almost like that Disneyland of tomorrow, and it's fascinating because I would want to learn more about the world they live in that then with the robots and stuff that makes them make the big Cygnus and, and all these other robots that are, you know, all this kind of a thing. But the, uh, the, uh, arcade, they talk about that, that, so these robots have these intricate minds and they started realizing sometimes these robots would just tweak out and they didn't know why it was happening. So they, so they started to have robot psychiatrists, which people used to start laughing at. But then the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist realized that uh, technicians were looking at the, the, the robots' brains under the microscopes, and they would see that some of the circuitry on their own had rewired, and when they've gone crazy. So the psychiatrist had quickly realized that just like the human mind, you can't have these robots just doing their tasks day in and day out. They needed some sort of relief to get their mind off of stuff. So people laughed at it at first, but what they would do is if they set these arcades up or these areas, uh, all these incidents of these robots kind of tweaking out went away. When the robots had time or were able to then go and, uh, you know, blow off some steam, steam, so to speak. And then the robots themselves started to help design these, uh, these facilities to the point where sometimes humans couldn't even go in them because the lights or the sounds were just almost so disturbing or, or nauseating. It was almost like, you know, you'd see like um, strobe lights or whatever. It was almost really uh, hurt humans' eyes or whatever. But, you know, humans couldn't wrap their heads around what kind of games these robots have invented to themselves that would, that would kind of, in a way, be their recreation. 
which um, I found intriguing. So, and you don't even have in the novelizations that star robot, which was supposedly to be um, the one that was the head of the uh, robot guards that then uh, became second in command after uh, Reinhardt made Maximilian. In the book, uh, Reinhardt makes Maximilian first, and uh, our theory, which I think we talked about on the, our other movie podcast on this movie, was that uh, it would make more sense then that it's Maximilian and Reinhardt who then overtake the crew. There's a mutiny on the crew, and Maximilian's already there, and he's the one who is able to help uh, take the crew over, and then they make all these other robots and stuff like that. So by the time you get to this scene where they're in this little arcade, there is no... Um, uh, uh, star like the black head of command robot that that Vincent has to duel, you know. And then you meet old Bob, and old Bob is the one who kind of fills him in. And it's interesting too because they talk about robots are are they're only uh, do what they're kind of programmed to do. So like Vincent is a very nice loving robot, but the robots on the Cygnus all have like a mean side to him. And then you get Maximilian, who's like the extreme example of that. So. Uh, when you have these robots that are that are on board the guards, you see when they're in the arcade, they're kind of messing with old Bob, the older Slim Pickens robot. And uh, Vincent's regarding that like, well, that's interesting because if uh, Reinhardt made all these guys, he's the one who programmed in this hostility in them, which didn't need to be there. And that's almost a, a uh, kind of a... A uh, an example of, of who he is, or of, if he's adding this in, and uh, Vincent regards all these robots he's made, where the humans are fascinated by them all. Vincent kind of looks at them almost like Isle of Doctor Moreau, where if uh, Reinhardt's Moreau, he's saying these are all his kind of creatures he's made on this hapdash kind of island, and it's kind of really freaky and scary. These things of of what they look like and how they act and how they respond. Um, and then there's the scene that we talked about in, in our thing that they never did is that they kind of play a pool like a billiards. Then there's like a, you know, and they're always messing with Bob and pushing him, you know, and, and, and he won't win. So then when Vincent plays, Vincent's able to win. And then he takes him to the side. He kind of tweaks his, he's like, you know, the reason why you're not winning is because, you know, you need this, you know, this screw adjusted or whatever. And then Bob finally starts talking to him and then tells him, yo, motherfucker, you need to tell, this is what's going on on the ship, you know? Um, so it's just these little things that 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 I find you know very very intriguing, and then when they go up to dinner with Reinhardt, that whole they they make this really point that all that has been fabricated fabricated by Reinhardt, where that's not really talked about in the movie, where they have this like kind of Victorian kind of dining room they eat in, and they said. Uh, Reinhardt himself made all that, and they're very astounded by like you know they have got they've got these drapes up they have this big wooden table uh there's this big candelabra in the middle and they're like that's also another uh example of his personality if if he's the one who made this for himself and then he's eating there by himself every night how does what does he think of himself if he's having these these servants wait on him in this kind of environment so they're all very uneased about all this food that's out and how kind of weird it is and um you know, it almost it's a, it's a comment on his his personality, his vanity, that he has gone through this trouble just to make a Victorian you know turn of the century kind of a setting, big grand table for him to eat in. Um, and Maximilian, the robot, he kind of talks in this weird. Uh, he makes kind of sounds, 
to uh, Reinhardt. That's how they're able to communicate. And that's how, like, when, when the probe ship comes back and Maximilian's able to alert them. And the, I think they don't really go into too much detail of what exactly the R Maximilian or Vincent kind of looks like. But they do have lights on them. So there's an indication of, like, when something happens, the, you know, their lights change or their, their patterns. It's almost like a, uh, you know, it's an illumination system. So you could tell what's happening or an alert by how, you know, how what's, what's going on with their lights on their bodies. And... Um, they also, when, when the realization is made, I think when Bob is telling everybody about that the crew is lobotomized, he's, and they're like, well, you know, maybe we should take the ship over and bring the ship back. Um, Bob's like, well, listen, you know, which is said in the movie, like, the, death is their only escape. These people can't come back. Bob says in the book that, you know, uh, they're either going to die of old age uh, because, you know, the, for the human component, or in some cases, there is a flicker of reality. They come back, and the, 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 the crew have a realization of, of what their life was, what they are now, and then they end up committing suicide because of this, which is another yeah. freaky thing that these, you know. <laughs> nice so, Disney um, fair. Yeah, so it's, it's just so weird that there's, it's, 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 very, it's very dark. And as I said, the comic book, the Whitman novels, uh, comic books, they uh, go through that and they, and, and they hit the same beats as the novelization. At the end of it, when Tony Perkins is killed on the bridge. Uh, I do like the Disney movie better than anything else because the Disney movie has Maximilian doing it on his own with the blades. That's very, you know, that's, you know, another thing uh, on a side note, it's, it's when I was researching this movie, there's a lot of people online who really have a disdain for the movie. And it's kind of sad where I thought there's a lot of people who liked it more, but there's a lot of people who, who love to, to slag it off and say it sucks and it's a piece of shit and it, and it bombed where I think the budget was around 20 or 25 million and it made 35 million and then it you know went into the it made a crap load of money on video so i think it was a success in that sense and we talked about in the other podcast the inherent problems we thought it had with the script but from a technical perspective how awestruck it is um i think that's you know something to be said but uh in the scene on the bridge in the novelization when tony perkins is killed in the book, it's Reinhardt just shoots him. And then in the novelizations, the same, uh, in the comic, it's the same thing. Reinhardt just kills him. And the reason he wants to keep K in the, what, what ends up happening is Anthony Perkins, remember, wants to stay with him. And she's trying to convince him, no, we got to leave now. We got to go. And the whole point was Reinhardt wants them to be able to leave so he, they, he can monitor. He's going to let them go and he's going to monitor, they're going to monitor him going to the black hole. So, uh, Tony Perkins decides he wants to stay. And then Kate is saying, no, you got to come with us. And so finally, when the revelation is made that, uh, the, they're zombies, the crew is zombies, uh, Reinhardt's saying, no, I, I want Kate to stay too. And Kate is going to go with us into the black hole. And she's like, I don't want to do that. And Tony Perkins is like, she, she doesn't want to do that. And Tony Perkins tries to stop Maximilian from grabbing her. And that's when uh, Reinhardt kills Tony Perkins, but Reinhardt says the reason he wants to take K is because of her ESP. It'll be a better thing for them to be able to go through and be able to directly communicate to Vincent and yeah. tell them what's going on. So there's more of an impetus of why he suddenly wants to grab her as opposed to just like, you know, oh, she's a female. <laughs> take her to the hospital, lobotomize her, and we'll have a bride. Yeah. It was more because they wanted to use her, her, um, her psychic hookup he had the ESP, so that makes more sense of, oh, that's why they want to take him. And then when all hell breaks loose, the the 
crew goes to try to save her from the hospital. Um, they kind of rationalize in the movie. It's kind of Borgna, uh, Borgnine loses his like his grit and takes off and says like, "Screw you guys, I'm leaving." Where in this movie, uh, in the books, they say the same kind of a thing, but then uh, the captain says, "No, you know, you can't." put it all on him it's not his fault you know we told him we'd be back in five minutes we weren't back and the ship was starting to fall apart he just took off like anybody would you know he, it wasn't they don't make him out to be a complete sleazeball where kind of in the in the end of it you know he kind of loses it he goes crazy He's like oh i gotta get out of here so they justify that a little bit and then once they go through the black hole in the novelization it, it they meet it's really weird they meet themselves in a different kind of ship uh that says Palomino on it, and they're like, oh my God, it's ourselves. And then they're captured by another ship comes over and boards them, and it's the robots that are from the black hole, the 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 guards. And then they take them with the ship back, and they find the Cygnus is there, and they're like, oh my God, it's the Cygnus. And then they get on board the Cygnus, and they meet Reinhardt, and it's Reinhardt, but it's a different Reinhardt. It's identical, but they're, they don't have any memory of this of them. So they're alive in this other universe on the other side of the black hole. Reinhardt's there with Maximilian, and Reinhardt's more of this warlord who has this uh, army of robots that, like the guards that we had, but he has these little ships, and he's been conquering and destroying planets, and uh, Maximilian talks in this. He's actually able to say, like, come with me, or, you know, you're, you're, come with me to the bridge, so he actually has dialogue in this thing, and there's this... Uh, uh, race called the Virilites, and they supposedly have the key to the to the to the to immortality. And um, Reinhardt's trying to trying to get. They have a force field over their city, so he's trying to break through the force field to get them to try to get to the key of life. And that's just comic three. So the first two are the novelizations. Comic three is this. The fourth comic, which is the really hard to sought after one, uh, has them go on the wrong planet. They think it's where the Verlites are. This is the crew escape Reinhardt with old Bob's help because they find old Bob. They get on another ship. They take off. And you realize when they take off, they take off in the Palomino that they saw themselves in when they first came through. Yeah. If that makes sense because I told you that they saw themselves. Yeah. So now they're on that ship. And old Bob goes outside and puts the name. He's like, oh, if they like this ship, he goes out and he writes Palomino. And they're like, oh, good job, uh, Bob. So now that's the reason why they see themselves. They go down to this planet thinking they're going to find the Verolites, this race. But instead they find these dinosaurs, prehistoric. It's actually like, it's almost Earth like 2,000 years ago. And they realize, oh, we're on the wrong planet. We're on the second planet from the sun. We need to be on the third one. So they take off again just in time before they get eaten by this Tyrannosaurus Rex, which is on the cover of the fourth issue, uh, terrifying them. And then they make it to the Verilites, the other planet, and they start talking to the Verilites, and the Verilites think that they're they're spies from Reinhardt, and they know who Reinhardt is, and Reinhardt's trying to take over their world, and they're like, no, no, we need we need your help because we want to get out of here, we want to go across the black hole, we want to go back. So they're like, okay, they they give them a nice bath, they give them like togas and stuff, and then Reinhardt comes, and Reinhardt's gonna try to fuck some shit up and they're like stay tuned for issue five and issue five never comes like we said issue five and six is only in german and, and spanish so we don't know well i don't know of this recording what ends up happening um there is a link that we can put with this little special podcast we're doing of the jack kirby everyone can go read the entire jack kirby run on a website and they can go read the four black hole novelization comics which are also online people have like um you know, what do you call pictures of, uh, what do you call that? Um, you know, uh, scans. Uh, thank you. They have scans of all this stuff. 
Um, I'm running quick over this. I don't know if the, I feel like I had such a bigger when I was <laughs> pitching this to Blake. I had such a bigger um, thing about it. But then since with everything going on in the world, it, it was a couple of weeks, so I've lost my flame for it. So it was it was like two weeks ago when I read everything. So I'm trying to figure out what else. Uh, maybe as we as as we start to wrap up, I can think about some other stuff that. Um, that uh, is talked about in this, but we do have the little points which are interesting. Where, like at the end of the, you know, the whole time when uh, Reinhardt's about to leave and he tells Maximilian to get the probe ship ready, uh, you have that thing where the big TV falls on him and Maximilian sees it, but he shuts the door. Which is a point I always loved. And then he's yelling at the crew, "Help me, help me!" And no one helps him, you know, because they're not programmed to help him, you know. So. Um, there, they, they, there's this whole thing which I guess is kind of glossed over in the movie too about he's developed this anti-gravity and that's the reason why he's able to just sit there and uh, they're able when they do a pass they're able to get into that anti-gravity and when they land and they talk about my gosh just your you know your uh your discovery of this anti-gravity would be such a, a an amazing thing to mankind. You got to tell you know tell your secrets or whatever. And um, when that's knocked out, when the first thing happens, I think it's because when Borgnine takes the, the their ship up and crashes in, he knocks out one of the engines in the anti-gravity unit, and that's why stuff starts that's being sucked into the black hole starts hitting them like the asteroids, and that messes the ship up, and it gets to a certain point where they really should abort. But Reinhardt's like, we could do it on two engines, and then. Shit starts going down, and you know, and that's the reason why it, it suddenly falls apart very quickly, you know. Um, but the art is amazing, especially the Jack Kirby. You know, the of, you know, they did have, even though the people don't look like them. Uh, Vincent looks identically like himself. Maximilian looks like him, and then the Cygnus and Palominos, they look like what they're supposed to look like, you know. Just it's the people who, you know, Kirby's people look very like Kirby people, you know, uh, the, that that face that he classically draws. Then I'm sure Disney kind of scaled back. He can't do those big splash pages because he was only able to do either three panels or six panels. Either They're all done in color, but then some were done in black and white because of whatever newspaper edition they came out in. And then recently in 2007, there was a Disney magazine that now is defunct that you can get in the grocery store, and that magazine would uh, reprint uh, editions of some of this uh, Disney Treasure series, and they redid all the colors, and they did at least the first part of the Kirby uh, black hole stuff with all these brand new digital colors, computerized colors that they do nowadays. And I don't know if the second part came out, because by that point, I don't know if the Disney magazine had completely gone under. So if people are interested, you can go and look and find that. 2007 Disney Magazine. So that's uh, <laughs> the black hole, the 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 Alan, the Alan Dean Foster novelization of the black hole. Cliff notes quickly that yeah. the, the big differences that I remember offhand that were of the uh, then it's stuff that like you know if Disney left in, it would make it for such a better movie. Just some of the answers, the dark stuff, and like I said, it really longs me. I would love to have a Disney. Like like the Lost in Space series they rebooted. Give me a series that was like that Tomorrowland, that George Clooney movie, where you see the world that they inhabit and the reason they made the big old Cygnus and you know and, and then then gone. It'd be so cool have intrigue and you know, a yeah. young Reinhardt and all that kind of a thing. And I it really beckons me to want to learn about the world that all these people come from and uh, 
the different, you know, the different robots and they go into you know, the service robots and what Vincent is and all that stuff. It's, it's very fascinating, you know. Sure. And then, especially if it's Alan Dean Foster just coming, all, coming up with all this stuff really himself. I'm sure Disney gave him some big guidance and he's going off an earlier version of the script, but a lot of this he's probably pulling out of his ass to explain away why they have this or that that they're not going to say in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing I find interesting about the black hole is... You know, it was, and we go into all this in the original podcast we did, so I'm not going down back yeah. to recap all this stuff, but it kind of leads a little bit into the soundtrack stuff, which is, you know, Black Hole was a property that was being developed before Star Wars, and then Star Wars came as out. A, as an Irwin Allen disaster kind of a movie. Yeah, kind of playing off the, the, the Get off the spaceship. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, get off the, it's, as it's called Space Pro 1, and it'd be like a space station that has a disaster on it because a star blows up or a sun, yeah. and then it turns into a disaster movie having to get off of it before, you know, shit goes down. Yeah, it's going to be much more up. in the vein of something like the Poseidon Adventure, and, yeah. then when, and then when Star Wars comes out, it was like, okay, that ends up green lighting the motion picture, Everything. Star Trek the motion picture, and then it was like, okay, let's do Black Hole. And clearly, Disney was really banking on Black Hole being a success. I mean, the, they yeah. th- you know threw money at it. They did some of the greatest special effects of the time in the movie. But then they had the toys, invented the s- stuff too. Yeah, and then but they had the toys, and they had the the storybook, and they had the novelization records, the 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 uh, lunch boxes. They had sheets. They had wallpaper. They had um, little. What are those? Those little Prince chart. What do you call those books? The the the, like the, the golden books. Golden books. They had golden books on them. That we talk about in the. They had Atari, uh, or they had Radio Shack uh, math games that came out <laughs> like two or three years later. Yeah. So you're right. They had their color forms. They had a board game. They had all anything that you could put the black hole on. They they came out with merch because they realized how you know, they wanted to throw their hat in the ring of that you know battle Star Galactica Buck Rogers. Everybody was going to space. James Bond goes to space. But Moon one Raker. of those one of those things is <clears throat> one of those many items is the soundtrack, and yeah. I'm sure I brought it up. When we did the show, I, I mean, I don't normally listen to the show, and I certainly don't remember everything that we talked about when we did the Black Hole a couple of years ago. But I must have brought up that they must have pressed a quadrillion copies of this thing because it's everywhere. You go to any convention, uh, any record convention, you go online, you go to any record store, everybody's got at least one copy of the Black Hole soundtrack in stock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is like 40 years later and they still have it. And uh and I discovered that um one of the reasons for that is that they pressed an astonishing 400,000 copies. <laughs> and what is the average do you think of the time for a regular even like something moderate to like something like uh, you know, BGs or ABBA at the time. Well, I don't know. know. Really I mean, popular. I think we're we're you know, I, you have to doing something like a pop album is something totally different than a soundtrack, and probably like Star Wars and the John Williams stuff, st- Superman, that stuff probably got pressed the crap out of. And also, <laughs> we're talking about a time when that was the main way you got music. So yes, yeah, that's something that people you know, you know, it wasn't like today. Shouldn't forget. 
I mean, yeah, that's how this is. And we talk about that, I think, in the original where, you know, prior to video, I mean, this is, it was at the dawn of the video market, but to get your stuff, you'd either have to get the Viewmaster, get the book on record, uh, get the, read the novelization, get the story, I mean, on record, or get the soundtrack on record, get, on get a, the toys. An, ab- an abridged eight millimeter. Yeah, filmed. they even had like a little Vincent robot. They had a little Vincent robot that was like a little, you know, it was like a remote control. It's like you know, or you, yeah, you're saying get the little, the the eight millimeter. They'd have a condensed ten minute version. You have a little eight millimeter film. But I mean, to put it in perspective, and today, of course, you know, we have you have things like Spotify and Apple Music and digital downloads and all that stuff, and so it's not really today. We're not really into physical media. <clears throat> as much as we were then. But nowadays, an orchestral score on CD or vinyl might get like a thousand, if they're lucky, copies made. Whereas the wow. Black Hole got 400,000 copies made. And John Barry, of course, I mean, I think most film goers and stuff, we know him best for scoring a lot of the Bond films. But yeah. he was, you know, at the time in the 60s, going into the 70s was like a real kind of like he was like the epitome of cool when it came to film scoring because of the bond movies he also scored a a score that uh, a movie that we saw in film school but a score that we like a lot which is the knack and how to get it which is very kind of like yeah, jazzy organ like hammond like like that real nice kind of jimmy smith sound yeah uh and he started i think his first movie is uh from russia with love and then he goes, I think, until like 87. So what is that? Maybe Living Daylights or whatever that movie. That's his, his tenure on the Bond. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so that's that's a good 15 movies. Or, yeah, know, he does a many, bunch of those. Count. He does a movie called Board Free. He does Lion in Winter, which is a big, you know, like Academy Award winning thing. He does, uh, in 1972, there was a live action Alice in Wonderland. So then in the 70s, he starts doing some fantasy he had an Alice in Wonderland adaptation. He does the uh, 1976 King Kong. Fabulous Dilo De Laurentiis movie, yeah. He does the uh, the White Buffalo, which is a fabulous <laughs> Jack Warden uh, Bronson uh, movie that I'm fond of from my youth, um, which is hard to find nowadays. But you, you actually now, as we're, of this recording, they're playing a lot, uh, it a lot on TV. So I saw it the other day, and I DVR'd it. And I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, but yeah. that's also, I think, a Dino De Laurentiis, Probably. you know. Yeah. One of those movies, but uh, then, or almost canonish. But then, with you know, 1977 and Star Wars, and everything going uh, kind of space, you know, it, it, we're we're now exploring the stars in in film and television. Uh, in 78, he does a movie called Star Crash, and then 79, he does Moonraker, which is yeah. Bond in space and Bond in space. <laughs> and of course, he does uh, the Black Hole. Um, yeah, Black uh, Barry was announced as the composer in March of '79, and he ends up recording the score eight months later in Burbank Studios, which is known now as the Eastwood Scoring Stage at Warner Brothers. He records it uh, in September, mid-September to late October of '79, uh, and ninety-four uh, piece orchestra with synths and he uses a um a device that gets ended up getting used a lot in that time period 
and it's a it's a percussive instrument uh, invented by a guy named Craig Huxley called the blaster beam, and it's really worth going online and seeing if you can find videos of it being played, not specifically for the black hole, but it's just it's a fascinating instrument, and it's an instrument that Bear McCreary ended up using in his score for uh cloverfield lane what's the, that that uh cloverfield sequel the one with john goodman yeah okay yeah and he uses that in that movie to kind of help symbolize like being in the bunker and what it is is it's this gigantic long metal beam like uh i mean i have aluminum i think and there's strings so it's like a stringed instrument and there's guitar pick there's like uh magnetic pickups like a gu- electric guitar and they can be from like 10 feet to 20 feet long there's they're massive and they're pl- it's played with like a mallet you know like uh, like you're going to play like the xylophones or something and a giant pipe used as a slide. So it's really like this gigantic, like lap steel kind of instrument. <laughs> like you see the, you, you sit down in front of and like, you know, yeah, but like the pipe is like, you know, I don't know, three, four inches in diameter. So it's not like a little thing. It's like, you got to hold and this thing and you wipe it across the strings and you hit the strings. Do you know sp- specifically where it's used in the soundtrack or what elements or what sound it's making? No, because it's tough because he's also using synths. In it, like, you know, okay. 79 is late mid 70s to, you know, turn into the 80s is when the synthesizer technology starts coming around. Yeah. And uh, so it's just, it's worth checking out that instrument because it gets, I think some of it, get, I think that might also get used in um, Jerry Goldsmith's, Jerry Goldsmith's score for Star Trek The Motion Picture. So that was an instrument that was uh, kind of around. At that time, um, and you know, and I co- commented on that. In, in he did the same year, uh, uh, John Barry. He did raise the Titanic, and when you, which is something we've also covered on this podcast. That if you listen to some of the cues in Raise the Titanic, which I find phenomenal, and there's a story that we go into on that podcast where. Uh, you, it's really hard to find the masters. I think that they th- threw out or whatever, so you can't really find the original cuts of what he used for Raise the Titanic. But a lot of the cues sound the same with the brass. He's yeah. using that big, you know, well, the French a, horns and all that he stuff. He has a style. It's lovely sounding. Yeah, yeah. It's almost interchangeable. Some of the stuff, you know. I mean, there's. I think in the Black Hole soundtrack, the only cue I don't really care for is like that march. Da, 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 you know, like when they're having that big shooting at the end. You know, like almost like what you when you have because this is a movie we talk about has a um, uh, at the beginning of it has a what do you call that uh, uh, the orchestra you know, uh, at the beginning you have the he has the overture at the beginning this the, the black hole which was put in it was in the original movie but then it was taken out for the VHS release but then with the DVD release they threw that back in so you have an overture of like this is what you're gonna get you know the, the, this this beautiful music you know so. The the Barry score is 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 yeah. The I mean, sound it's, is is it's very particular. It's also you know there's also seventy nine is also Moonraker and so there are parts of it that are a little bit reminiscent of that also. I mean he certainly has a style that is that is recognizable as being uh, you know John Barry. Um, the yeah. main theme is great and it gets used throughout the score in different ways. Um, 
he talked about how that theme itself was kind of inspired by the black hole and the graphics they did at the beginning of the movie for the you know of the black hole and this it's it's like a three quarter time like swirling waltz and so he he kind of imagined this like it's this un you know this like secular cyclical piece of music that just keeps on going forever and ever well, it kind of it, you, you say that and then you watch the credits when it's over and the credits have that digital you realize that you're you're looking at when it pulls out it's a computer composite of a black hole and you start going into it you do have that dan 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 you know it does have a waltz kind of a yeah. and then every layer that gets added after every measure you get more he adds the the percussion he adds the brass he adds you know and then by the end of it, it's in the, the strings and it's so lovely sounding it is it has a very we we a big point we brought up in the first podcast on this was that it's like a gothic haunted house in space the cygnus yeah and it's and you know there's a lot of stuff you know people shit on this movie but you know you wouldn't have a red horizon without this movie in my opinion no it's a lot of stuff where it's straight horror that then it ends up you know it could have went a different way and this the soundtrack has that sound of a gothic haunted house sure. you're stuck almost like the the disney haunted house thing they have on the parks like you know when you when you go by the ride you see the the ghosts in the ballroom dancing you know this sounds like a song that you'd hear yeah. a, a waltz in like one of those parlor rooms or a music room you also you know? adds an element of a march which is something that john williams does a lot but in this case it adds like this almost like ominous feel to it uh probably most notably the score is considered the first film soundtrack to ever be recorded digitally yeah because up until that point everything was being done on analog tape and uh it was done on a machine a recorder called a 3m as in michael recorder and it wasn't a machine that you could buy so it was like 3m had their machines and you leased it just kind of we talked about the way they kind of did this some of the special effects um and so 3m would send you uh, an engineer and yeah. and uh and the machine and oh. that's that's common in the industry because like i work in the the uh TV, television, news, and for sound design, you know, if you work with Shore, you work with Sennheiser, you know, when you buy their equipment, release their equipment, you get the engineer come, sets it all up for you, and you go through it with them, and you know, their representative. So that's a common practice. And like you said, originally they wanted to get Dykstra's equipment that they used in Star Wars for the end stuff, where they had the computerization, where they track the shots, and Dykstra wanted a crap load of money, and, and, and I guess it was it was just Lucas at the time. So Disney said, "Fuck it, we'll make our own." And they made this Ace uh, Aces. It's called. It's an acronym for something. And they did their first thing where they're able to, like we said, um, they invented technology where they're able to to pan up into into matte paintings, which was unheard of at the time. You'd have a, usually matte paintings were a static shot, but this was you can they could do time stuff where you could have people walk in and then they can pan up into the painting, which was yeah. beautiful and unheard of for the widescreen. So they were they were inventing tech for this movie. Yeah, and you know I don't want to get too much further down the this rabbit hole, and you know I know we want to wrap it up. But one thing I do find really interesting about it, and I'll try to sum it up kind of quickly, is that so they release this record, and you know, like I said, they release a crap load of copies of it. You can still find them used, sometimes even sealed at record stores today. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder if it's if they did the same thing with the because uh, there's two. There's the score. 
And then I there's also like the movie, you know, where you can listen to dialogue. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I wonder if there's also, you know, I'm 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 almost positive that there's now now that you know when you talk about something you start questioning yourself, but I'm almost positive that there's the score, you know, where you hear the and then there's also the 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 you know it's like the the movie on tape where you have the score but then you have the dialogue sure. of what's happening and. You know what I mean? So yeah. anyway, but the actual score itself, I think, was only like a half hour's worth of music on the on the record uh, that they released, and it didn't get a. You know, that's like was that seventy nine? Was Black Hole? Yeah. So you know, just within a couple of years, then they start. You know, the music industry changes, and we get a, a the first digital format, which is you know. Uh, at least heavily marketed digital format, which is CD. So it's shocking that they had this score that was the first digitally recorded score, and it didn't get put on CD until well into the 2000s. <laughs> they never released it on CD. All they had was yeah. the, the the record. The, the record, and it par- probably part of that has to do with that it wasn't necessarily a big financial success, and there was no reason to. There didn't seem to be that big of a demand, but um, so you know, flash forward to two thousands, uh, uh, a record producer named Randy Thornton says, who's working with Disney, <clears throat> says, you know what, the thirtieth anniversary of the black holes coming up in 2009 we should release like an expanded the collector's edition cd it was recorded digitally this will be the first time it's put out on a digital format we won't have to go from analog tapes to then clean them up and all that stuff it'll be great well it's for the 30th anniversary so he comes up with this idea to release it in 2009 and it ended up being such a headache that it doesn't come out uh, until like 2014 or something. <laughs> wow. Why? Just because like, of some issues with uh, Disney or? Well, what happens is um, the first they needed to find the masters. They needed to find the 3M recorded masters. Um, they ended up finding analog masters that were straight from the microphones that they were using. But he's like, I'm not releasing there's i'm not releasing a digital cd of the analog masters of the first digitally recorded score ever made so like it's nice that we have them but we can't put them on cd um so he searches and he ends up finding like 32 track uh mass the digital master for the from the 3m machine and a four track uh digital master from the uh from the uh, 3m machine and by this point, it's not coming out in 2009. So what they end up doing is taking the analog masters and they release them as a digital download. I think on like iTunes. So it's like at least they had something they could put out. But he's like, my work's not done. We'll put that out. But I really want to do this CD. So once they coincide the mas- with the anniversary, well, they missed the anniversary. Yeah. So for the anniversary, they just released the analog masters on in digital yeah. download. It's like MP3s. But he really wanted to continue, not just to release it, but to preserve it the way it was supposed to be. You know, it was digital, and now it's it's a digital world. It's a perfect marriage. 
So once they find the Masters, the big problem is now he has to find a 3M machine, which has been obsolete for like 30 years at that point. To play it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so he starts talking to people, and they're like, well, you know, you could, you could get your machine, but then we're having trouble with this aspect of it. So you could go from the machine, and then you could go out to analog and then make your digital copy from there. And he's like, no, you're kind of missing the point. Like, you're going back we, to we go need forward. to make a digital copy. So he ends up uh, going to a guy named Roger Nichols, who's like a renowned sound engineer who had worked a lot with the 3M machines back in the day, even though he didn't work with them, but he was familiar with the format. And Roger Nichols ends up kind of convincing him, like, what you need to do is you need to get a 3M machine. You need to go out the analog output and then into an analog to digital converter. And even though uh, Randy Thornton, who's the producer, is like, that's, it's, it seems like a step backwards, but he, he puts out like in his notes that like, if Roger Nichols says that's the way to do it, you listen because that's how like kind of renowned he is. Like he's respected. So they need to find the machine. They end up contacting a guy named, they find a guy named Ron Ensminger who used to work for 3M and was the guy that Dis- that 3M sent to Disney. The engineer that they and, sent along. And was the technician that taught the Disney guys how to use the machine. For and, the black hole. Yeah. And so they find him in like Minnesota or something. You know, like or Michigan. Minnesota. You know, for somewhere. They find him somewhere. And they say, uh, this is what we want to do. And he says, yeah, okay. He's like, and I have several of the machines here. It's just laying around. Yeah. So they go, uh, they send their like recording engineer with the tapes to this guy, Ron's house. And, uh, oh, Ron. and, uh, they end up finally being able to do it, but it was like this huge house. And I just thought it was like really fascinating. This idea of they recorded it digitally to preserve it for the they future of digital, but then they couldn't, <laughs> do anything with the digital master but then in 2000 you know and then in 2000 yeah. i think it was 14 finally that uh that cd ended up coming out in a li- kind of a limited edition uh, run i don't think i have that edition i have the original record but i don't think i have the cd of that the updated version of that um might have been 2011 but for some reason i have 2014 in my head either way they missed the, the 2009, 2009 anniversary uh, by year but when we went to the Burbank lot, didn't we go past the, the, a recording studio that said the digital, remember they said they recorded? There was the plaque on the wall. You know, I was thinking that too when I was reading it because they're talking here that it was recorded at the... Um, at Warner. At Warner, at the Warner Brothers lot. But we did, but yeah, we went to Burbank and the, on the Disney had, there's lot. A, we have a picture of that. Of it I says wonder, this is where the first... Or maybe, they, maybe they did the mixing there? Yeah, maybe they mastered or I was it there. In, maybe, or maybe they mastered it in, at the Warner lot. And, and they had they recorded it on the you know because it says something about this is where they recorded the soundtrack and then they said that was our first clue about it being a digital soundtrack yeah yeah um, you know well you know it's not surprising I mean I'm a huge Disney fan but you know um, I've got issues with Disney with you know what they're doing nowadays and stuff but um, you know it, they're putting all their stuff out now on their new app the Disney Plus 
So they're finally opening their vaults because for years you couldn't get stuff that, you know, they're, especially all their old cartoons that were kind of, they have, I think, as much of an output as almost like Looney Tunes and yeah. Warner had, but you just couldn't find them anywhere because they were, and then there's stuff where they're, they would have something out for a limited time and they would bring it back into the vault. So um, I remember you had the original VHS release of this movie and then in 1999, I think it was, Anchor Bay got the rights. And Anchor Bay, remember, you were with me. They they had a tin that came out, yeah. a VHS edition. And that was a tin, nice nice metal tin, comes with lobby cards. Uh, I think original lobby cards, but didn't have Disney on it anymore. It was just the black hole because it was the Anchor Bay had the, the, the rights for, them for a minute. And then in 2004, uh, I think it's... Disney puts a uh, edition out on DVD of it, but then the DVD edition is just like the Anchor Bay edition. It's not really remastered at all, to my understanding. There was some sort of complaint, but then I feel like in two thousand nine, maybe I'm getting my 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 years wrong. But then they put a second release out, and it's all so maybe I'm sorry, maybe nineteen ninety nine. They do put a DVD edition out, Anchor Bay, but it's just the same as. But so the two thousand four. Disney puts an edition out when they get their rights back. It has a little featurette, and they might do some cleanup work, and they might remaster it. And then that leads up to recently, last year, Disney put out a Blu-ray edition of it that was exclusive. If you're part of the Disney Club, you can only get it through there. And they've done a, a, a series of movies that way that you can only get them if you're part of the... the, the now you can get them because people are reselling them on Amazon or eBay. So Blake and I picked up editions of it, um, the Blu-ray, and... That was another thing was when I started all this I, a couple about a month or two ago I watched the Blu-ray edition and it was kind of sad because when it came when they brought it it was its first time on Blu-ray and they really didn't do anything there's no special features or anything which kind of sucks it's like mm. oh Disney you could do something you have what we had we talked about um, the in the first podcast we did we talked about they did that episode of the wonderful world of disney that night and they had the gentleman who did the what's his name that you know the guy who did that he did the special about this but he did the he ends up doing that movie that you like the the uh time the time blazer what's the guy in the 80s that the movie that the guy he did the soundtrack and he's a director and it's you know the movie i'm talking about <coughs> no that you found on ebay uh, it, it, you know, it, it, he did the sound. He did the soundtrack. He directed the movie, and the movie's a real like iconic cult classic movie about uh, living in L.A. and being in the business. And it's, he's, <coughs> oh, he's running the Wizard fast. of Speed and Time. Thank you. Yeah, he that didn't guy do the, did. He didn't do the soundtrack. John Massari did the soundtrack, but yeah, he was working with Disney in the late seventies and early eighties. And he did, yeah, and he did like the, he he worked on the episode that they talk about the. Yeah. The, 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 yeah. So they could have at least included that because they have that supplemental to material. But all they did was just put it on Blu-ray for all intents and purposes. So when we went and watched it, it's it it sadly uh, uh, it's very apparent the limitations, and I don't know why because of a Blu-ray release. But it, just everybody's just covered in blue outline. When anytime you see them cross a matte painting or or one of those. Um, you know, uh, when they did like an optical printing shot of like the space outside, yeah. it looks really bad. And it's just sad because this is the definitive Blu-ray release. And then when you watch it, it really, unlike the VHS or the other DVD releases, it, it enhances, you get that blue, you know, it looks really yeah. bad. And I don't know why Disney didn't somehow clean that up or something, you know? Yeah, they don't seem to handle the home video thing very well, unfortunately. Because um, they have, even get, the Disney Plus, I'm not really that... There's so much stuff that it's like they forgot about our generation almost for Disney yeah. Plus. It's like for people 
old it's like it's the old movies and then it's like the yeah. Disney Channel stuff which is you know I mean they sure they have like High duck, School Musical and they stuff have like sure they have like DuckTales and stuff like that but I would yeah. love to get it's more of I would love to get more of like the Disney Sunday Night you know Wonderful World of Disney stuff from our generation like is there. Mr. Boogity like are those movies on the, like the movies they made you know I wonder that might be I, I haven't explored but there's a lot more that isn't um, and I would love to get some of the special feature stuff that's on things like Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea and you know like I would watch that stuff Darby fa- O'Gill far more than I would watch you know I don't know yeah the movie one of the dis- yeah, yeah. one of the feature length. Uh, animations yeah. for upteenth time i would much rather watch like making of stuff from because that was their thing you know they made magic yeah. and i would love to watch how yeah. they made it and it's weird because i and i haven't d- delved too deep into the disney plus rabbit hole but i wonder if all those live action i mean like aside from like the the a-list freaky friday or those if the b-tiered ones like you know like the devil and max devon or the the Noah's Ark one they did, or this, you know, you're going to have like the Swiss Family Robinson Treasure Island. Yeah. But I wonder if there's a whole bunch of 70s, you know, uh, the Apple Dumpling Gang, all that stuff, Pete's Dragon, which sure. I'm sure is on there. But I want to see if there's the other ones that I grew the up B-sides. on because I remember going to, the, <laughs> yeah, I remember going to the video store and that's the reason why I was getting the black hole is because they had a live action section. Yeah. And I was every day getting, you know, I would get 20,000 leagues under the sea. I'd get Darby, not Darby O'Gill yet, but I would get. Uh, you know the, the black hole. So they do surprise me now with why they're not. You know, and you know we could pitch them a great show, a great yeah. Disney. Like you, we could do a black hole TV series, which would be freaking awesome. You redo it somehow. And I even did a spec script or uh, a proposal some years ago with uh, my two friends who I used to do the podwits with of of doing a serious R PG thirteen rated black hole movie. You know, because it lends itself. If when everyone was talking about remakes and. I remember when Tron came out, they were like, we're going to remake Black Hole 2, and that kind of petered out. And that's when you get online, a lot of people are like, yeah, they realized the, movie, the first movie sucks, <laughs> so why the hell are you going to make another movie that's going to suck? I'm like, Jesus. So I had even a treatment for like a serious Black Hole you know, that followed the beat points of the original movie um, and not make it too much like Event Horizon. But um, you know, there's just so much of this world that it, that's intriguing that I love, and that was the reason why I, I dove into the novelizations, and then I fell down again a rabbit, rabbit hole of getting the comics, the Whitman comics, and the Dell um, uh, Gold Key comics, just because it was awesome. Uh, oh, nice. And then seeing that there's different versions, you know, you have the Jack Kirby, you have the the, the comic, the Whitman comic, and then you have the Al, uh, Alan Dean Foster, you know. Uh, now all I got to do is go find the storybook and the, and listen to the records, you know. So. <laughs> Um, I'm sure there's other stuff to talk about the novelization, but I mean, it is kind of accessible. People can find it on eBay. It's online. It's definitely worth the read. Alan Dean Foster's the man. Uh, Blake and I have talked about him a lot and we come to find out as we look that we have a lot of his, um, his novelization output in our, in our libraries. So I have not delved into full disclosure, his, his, uh, magical fantastic world sci-fi stuff that is that is his own i was more of the star log star trek logs the star trek records of the 70s and then his novelizations like alienation or aliens and yeah, yeah. you know i have i have his novelization he did of uh alien 3 on cassette read by lance henriksen nice you know and lance henriksen just came over and read it to me and i cassette taped it <laughs> and you recorded it <laughs> yeah i recorded it are you ready <laughs> 
<laughs> just smoking the whole time. You know, I need another cigarette. Anyway. So anyway, this is getting um, as long. This is getting as long yeah, as the original episode. I know we didn't need to be this long. Uh, a lot of talking, but anyway, yeah. So we just figured we'd come back with a little unsolved mysteries update and uh, talk about some of the stuff that would that was cool, that was intriguing, that and, that kind of had some of the questions we were talking about in the original episode of why and then that's cool with the with the soundtrack i didn't know anything about that and that's kind of a a shame i mean john barry to me he's a legend you know uh passed away i think in 2011 maybe um you know north england's own uh john barry so you know really like you said he has that style when you hear it you can say oh that's john barry you could tell yeah you know um yeah, really, really, really awesome soundtrack, and it's one of my favorite scores of all time. Um, the, his soundtrack for the Black Hole. So um, we hope you enjoy this little extra. Hope everything's uh, you know okay, doing well. Uh, you know, Blake and I have our our different things. You can get us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. The Saturday Movie Sleepovers is on the same thing. You can find our website too, and go check out our back episodes on wherever you're listening to your podcasts. Uh, Blake has his own um, uh, stuff going on. What do you got, Blake? Score to Death, conversations with some of Horace Gray's composers. Uh, sometime in the, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, Score to Death, the podcast, will come back not as heavy as it was in the first season, but I uh, hope There's to... There's that word heavy again. <laughs> I have to, hope to at least uh, do a couple episodes here and there. Uh, I, don't know if I, yeah. have, I don't know if I have it in me to do it on a regular basis, but uh, I still want to talk to guys and do that and of course uh, social media you can find me at scored to death nice how about you dm and i i got blood in the streets uh you can get my novel is on uh amazon wherever you get your books it's uh paperback ebook and audiobook uh you can find that on twitter as well instagram facebook uh and then hopefully by the end of the year i'll have my second morris pi uh book coming out so that'd be exciting unrelated to the first one blood in the streets so you can get those and we'll be back very soon with another edition of saturday night movie sleepovers uh we hope everyone's hanging in there and just you know um keeping cool and following the social distancing and you know uh i guess we can realize also along with the illness there's other things going on too people are getting you know there's a lot of depression a lot of anxiety so you know please hang in there and if you know if you need anything hell reach out to us if you want to talk <laughs> if there's stuff going on we'll talk to you you know uh, <laughs> we're join always the conversation the <laughs> yeah you know join the conversation online you know you could retweet us like us uh suggest movies and stuff like that and we'll be back very soon with a whole new episode so we hope this one's kind of like uh like you know this freaking episode itself is uh you know a little feature length is tidied you over so we'll talk to you real soon later